0: Hi there, we're in a series called We Believe Foundations for a Resilient Faith and what we're doing is we're looking at the eight key doctrines at the heart of Christianity, the things, if you like, that all Christians agree on and all Christians have to agree on and if you're new to Christianity that might be kind of helpful because you may look in at the Christian faith and think, wow, the differences between Roman Catholics and Orthodox churches and you guys and others The differences look huge, but actually what we've just heard read out from the Nicene Creed, this 1700-year-old confession of faith for Christians, that's something that all Christians agree on. It is effectively the essential things that we have to agree as Christians, and the analogy we used last week was like, you're playing Jenga, and you have some blocks which if you take them out, the structure can still survive. You know, you might be missing a bit, but in the end, the whole of the rest of the structure still stands. But there's some beliefs that are so essential and so foundational that if you take them out, the whole thing falls down. And we're looking in this series at the ones which are foundational, the ones without which Christianity cannot be, can't function. And the other analogy we used was that in Christianity, like in many things I guess, that there are doctrines and teachings that are written in pencil, in ink and in blood. And so there are things that are written in pencil which you could rub out and change and it doesn't really matter. There are things written in ink which you are committed to and you have a strong view on, but nevertheless you agree that people who disagree with you are still Christians. But then you have things which are written in blood. Those are the things you would die for. And those are the things that if you were to take them out of Christianity, you wouldn't have Christianity any longer. And we've been looking at really what the eight of those are according to the Nicene Creed. The first one we looked at last week, and it was we believe in one God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and all things seen and unseen. And this week, we're looking at, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. Now that is quite a mouthful. And you can shorten it to, we believe in Jesus, right? It is quite a mouthful. And we're going to go through and explain what those things mean as we go. But before we do, it might be worth explaining that this line, this section, this week in the series, is actually the reason that the Nicene Creed was written in the first place. So we did a little bit on this last week, but it's worth knowing the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325 AD, was called in the first place by the Emperor Constantine to resolve this issue. This, if you like, is the line in the creed that the whole creed was written in order to preserve. And so there was a debate taking place in Alexandria in North Africa, and there was a, an African bishop whose name was Arius, and he, was, he had argued in his book, Banquet, that, that there was a time when Jesus was not. He, he argued that Jesus is divine, but he's not the same nature as God. He's not of the same substance. He's not the same kind of being as the Father. He's like a lesser God. And there, there was this famous line, he said, there was a time when he was not, that he was effectively came into existence. And he was a bishop in the city of Alexandria. And then uh, uh, one of the deacons in the city, whose name was Athanasius, who's appearing on the screen next to him now, And he just stood up in front of Eris. In fact, he was like, no, 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 no. Or in fact, because he said it in Greek, he was actually saying, ooh, 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 which is the Greek word for no. And it's kind of a better rebuttal in many ways. And Athanasius confronted him and said, this is not Christianity. Jesus is fully divine. He is of the same nature as the Father. And it's incredibly important. And so there was a, a council in Nicaea in Turkey what's now Turkey to resolve that debate and so the Emperor Constantine called together bishops from all over the empire and one report says there were 318 bishops there from all over the Christian world and 312 of those 318 agreed that Athanasius was right and that Arius was a heretic In fact, the story goes that one of them, Saint Nicholas, was so angry about what Arius was saying, so angry to hear people describing Jesus as created and as less than the Father and as not eternal, that he actually went across the floor of the Nicene Council and slapped him in the face. That's what this picture represents, and that's Saint Nicholas. Nowadays, we know by a different name. We know him as Santa Claus. In other words, Father Christmas actually slapped a heretic, as the story goes, which I just think is marvellous. Father Christmas, so next time, you know, as we run into Christmas this year, you can just think, ah, he slapped a heretic. And you can tell all your friends about it. But the, the point is, when they landed the debate, they said, this man Arius, who says Jesus had a beginning and is not fully divine with the Father, this man is a heretic. That means he's teaching something that is false, and the church needs to denounce it and say, we don't believe that. And to make it crystal clear, they spelled it out, and they said Jesus is eternally begotten, God of God, Light of Light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And that's why they use that kind of phrasing. And that statement is an outstanding summary of the teaching of Scripture. And we're going to, and particularly, or as one example of the teachings of Scripture on this point, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, and. Uh, beginning at verse 1 and we're going to read through it a bit at a time and comment on what it shows us about the person of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. I just pause there a moment. God has spoken to us by and in and through his Son. The Son, therefore, is the Word of God, God's Word, his definitive revelation. So if you want to know what God says about something, you look at the person of Jesus, and he is the heir of all things. That's how Hebrews is beginning. And then we read this phrase, end of verse 2, through whom, as in through Jesus, he also created the world. The son through whom he also created the world. And I think that also is ridiculous and kind of hilarious as well. Like he also created the world through Jesus. I sometimes have to write um, little biographies for myself. You know, people, I speak at an event or something and, and they say, could you just give us a little bio to summarize who you are? And what I usually do is I'll say a couple of big things about who I regard myself to be. So nowadays I'd say, Andrew is teaching pastor at King's Church London and the author of blah, blah, blah. But then sometimes I throw in some trivia at the end. Like, he is also a big fan of fine wine and hates cats with the fire of a thousand suns, or something like that. The trivia kind of comes in on the end of the sentence, and it's not really the point of the sentence, it's just a little bit of interesting detail at the end. And that's where the also comes in. You know, I am this, also that. I find it amazing that the writer of the Hebrews can say the Son is the final word of God to the world. He is the heir of all things. Oh, he also is the one through whom the world was created. That's an extra detail you might also want to know about him. Jesus is so supreme that you can say the word also about the fact that he is the one in whom the world was made. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Notice two distinct ways of describing how God the Father and God the Son relate to each other. The first one is that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. So if God is a giant flaming star, then Jesus is the light or the brilliance or the shining from the star. He's the one that we can see. He's the thing that we can see. And we can't see the if you like, the blazing fiery star, the blazing fiery glory of the Father is not seen, but what we can see is the light emanating from it, and that's Jesus. That's the picture. And that's not literal. We have to be careful not to do that with God, but that's a picture of the relationship between the Father and the Son. The Son is the radiance of the glory. And the other picture we get is that the Son is the exact imprint of his nature. That's the word that the Greeks use for a stamp like a seal or a coin. So what you do is you put a sort of stamp on something and then the image that you are imprinting is the same as the image that is imprinted. They look exactly the same and it's it's an exact replica, we might say. So the writer of the Hebrews is saying, you want to know what God looks like? You can't see this. Well, you look, stamp, you look like that. So what is God like? Like this. What does God feel about the nations, about poor people, about sinners? You look at Jesus like this. How does God reconcile judgment and mercy? How does the invisible God do that? Like this. See, he's the radiance, he's the shining of the glory of God, and he's the precise replica, the exact imprint of his nature. And then there, also in verse 3, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, we've already heard that God created the world through the sun, and now we hear that the sun upholds everything as well. Right Some things you might think in their normal state, don't need upholding. this lectern I 'm speaking from now doesn't need upholding. It stands there on its own terms. but this book does need upholding, so I'm, I uphold it like this, but if I stop upholding it, it falls, goes to the ground. It, it cannot sustain itself. The world is not an, a self upholding thing it's something that needs to be upheld by somebody or someone greater than it, and he does that by the word of his power. The world is contingent the world needs to be upheld and sustained by a force beyond itself or else it would cease to exist and the way that the son jesus does that he upholds it through his Word. in that sense if you could say well it's not like a book then it's not like something that physical that needs to be upheld it's more like a word or a song that needs to be upheld so if i if i start to sing a note as soon as i stop The sound stops. There is an active relationship of sustaining between me, the author, and that which is being sustained. And the relationship between Jesus and the earth is like someone singing out a note, singing out the world, and causing it to continue to be. And as soon as he withdraws his word, the earth would cease to be. That's how the universe continues to be here. In him, all things hold together. That's why the creed says, through whom he also created the world. He is the one in whom the world came to be, and the one in whom the world continues to be. This is Jesus we're speaking about here. Verse, rest of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we'll look at that verse a bit more in the next couple of weeks because we're going to look at his purification for sins and his ascension into heaven in the next few weeks in the series. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The writer is saying... The son is a totally different sort of being to the angels, right? God never says to the angels, I'm begetting you. I have begotten you. That would never be a word he'd use. Now, we don't very often use the word begetting either. Uh, we don't, I said last week, we don't stop pregnant women and say, oh, you're begetting. That's congratulations. It's not a word we typically use. So it's worth explaining that to beget something is to generate something of the same essence as you. That's what you do when you beget. As opposed to to create or to make which is to create something of a different essence than you. So my wife and I have actually written a book, the book I just dropped just now, right? So this is a book that we have, if you like, made, it's created. It's of a different essence than us. It's made of paper, right? It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's sort of 170 pages long or something. It's something that we created, but it does not represent our essence. It is a totally different kind of something. And you wouldn't really guess what I look like by looking at the book, unless, you know, it's just a totally different sort of substance. On the other hand, we have also begotten three children, one of whom, this good-looking young man here, is my son Zeke. And uh, he looks just like his mum, which is lucky for him. Um, And he is is somebody that we have begotten. And when we do that, we are generating a life that is of the same essence as us. He is a human being. He has human DNA. He is just like us in his essence. Now, he looks a little different, of course, but he he is of the same substance, the same kind of thing as we are. Now that analogy between the father and the son is obviously imperfect, because the father and the son are not just kind of alike, but they actually are exact, we've already seen, exact, the son is an exact imprint. Zeke is not an exact replica of me. And of course there was a time ten years ago when Zeke didn't exist. But nevertheless you can see the difference between begetting and making or creating. And the point is that the Son is of the same essence, the same nature. And that's why the Creed spells it out. And that's why Hebrews spells it out. To which of the angels did God ever say that? I've begotten you. No, God creates the angels, but he begets, he generates the Son. The Son is of the same nature as the Father. And the Son, unlike earthly children, has always existed, as we've already seen, through whom he also made the world. So we have an eternal begotten, not made, son, who is of exactly the same nature as his father. Verse 6, and again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, he said, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That's a quotation from Psalm 45 in the Old Testament. And it is one of the strongest statements of the divinity, the godness, the deity of Jesus in the whole of the scriptures. The reason is because there are two people in this text referred to as God, if you read Psalm 45. right, The speaker is saying, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And at that point you might think, oh, it's just talking about God, the Father. But then immediately after it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, who are also God, with the oil of gladness. You think, how does this work? The only way the psalm can be understood, and this is the point the writer is making, is if there are two individuals both able to be addressed as God. One of them, the king who is ruling over Israel, the Christ, the anointed, and the other is the anointer, the Father, who is also God. You are God, You are God. And it only makes sense as a text if both of those things are true. And Hebrews is saying, nobody would ever say that about the angels. They would only say it about Jesus, the Son, the Eternal, the Everlasting One, of the same nature as the Father. They would say, He is not a mere messenger. He is God. He is eternal. He is worthy of being worshipped by the angels themselves and by the whole of creation. He is begotten, not made. It's an incredibly high vision of Jesus Christ that the writer of the Hebrews is giving us and the creed in framing it and spelling it out as it does is simply trying to show us how glorious that picture is. Verse 10. And then you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish you remain, they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. The sun is changeless, everything else in the world changes except God. Everything else goes through change, goes through ups and downs, goes through twists and turns and difficulties and life and death and cycle and so on. But only God does not change. And the, the writer is saying, this is speaking of Jesus. This is speaking of the Son, a changeless one, an uncreated one, who was there at the beginning. Right? You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth at the beginning, which means Jesus must be eternal. He must have been there before there was a world. You were the Word in the beginning. We sing that because we're saying, you are an eternal one. You are not created. He is everlasting. So the heavens and the earth, the stars, the planets, the sun will be folded up and put away in a drawer like you put away your clothes at the end of the day. But the sun will never end. He is changeless. He is matchless. He is ageless. He is ceaseless. He will never, never end. And on that basis, we praise and we acknowledge, you are of the same nature as the Father. You are not a created something. And that's why Athanasius could say to Arius, ooh, 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 as we saw. That's why he said, no, you've got to understand, he is not a created something. He is creator himself with the Father. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The Son has been given the place of highest honor. Angels are servants. Right? Angels go out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. That's us. But the Son has been seated at the right hand of the Father as all of his enemies are gradually hoovered up and turned into a footstool for him. That's what this text is saying. Right? You, never, you would never talk that way about an angel or a prophet or a messenger. You can, cannot imagine God saying to the angel Gabriel, sit at my right hand and I will make everything in the universe come and submit to you. That, you never, God would never talk like that and never does in scripture. He only speaks that way of his son, Jesus, according to Hebrews 1, is fully divine himself, and that is a vital truth when it comes to his ability to save, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks. So just if all you had in Scripture was Hebrews 1, you would have an astonishingly high vision of the person of Christ, of the eternity, the changelessness, the divinity of Jesus Christ. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And actually, that's just from Hebrews 1, right? We, we haven't mentioned any of the other scriptures. We haven't gone to Colossians 1 and seen he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Or Colossians 2, in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We haven't gone to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We haven't even heard Jesus' own statement in John 8, 58, before Abraham was I am. We haven't referred to any of those texts until just now, and yet even in Hebrews 1 on its own, we can see this exalted, fully divine, eternal picture of Jesus, the Son of God. Now the problem is, that creates an issue for Christian theology and Christian people across time. Namely, how do you speak about Jesus in this way, And as we'll see in a few weeks time actually, how do you speak about Jesus and the Holy Spirit in this way without compromising our belief in his distinct personhood or our belief in one God? Which is what we talked about last week, right? That's not easy. That is very challenging to do. How do you speak about the idea that there is one God and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are fully divine and that the Father, Son and the Spirit are distinct one from the other? How do you do that? How do you speak about God as one yet three, which is what the Latin word Trinity is? It's saying three in oneness. How do you do that? But how meaningfully can we articulate that kind of teaching? It sounds like you can't do maths. So how do we do it? And what some people do is they do it by denying the oneness of God. So if you, you have three statements you're trying to balance, right? There is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit are each God, and they're distinct persons, One of the ways of doing it is you deny the first statement. You say, no, there isn't one God. There's three gods. That's called tritheism. Maybe there's many gods. And some people deny the oneness of God deliberately, like Mormons, for instance. The oneness of God is not something that Mormons would hold to in the same way. Some people do it by mistake. Um, There's a kind of bizarre YouTube video in which Benny Hinn gets himself into a bit of a tangle on the Trinity and he ends up saying that there's nine persons because he sort of says, well, there's three and each of the three are Father, Son and Spirit and he goes, and he finishes it, it's really weird if you've seen it he goes, that's right, there's nine of them, folks and I think we're all going, no, 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 there really aren't and, uh, and so some people do it by mistake and some people do it on purpose but they, the point is, one of the ways you can address the doctrine is say, well, there, maybe there isn't one God Orthodox Christians never go that. The second thing you can do is you can deny the existence of three divine persons. You can say, well, they're not persons. They're just different manifestations of one God. Right? So the Father, Son, and the Spirit are not persons who can relate to each other. They're different expressions of one God. And that would be something that may be more familiar to some of us through oneness Pentecostalism. And oneness Pentecostalism is really a way of teaching about the person of God that doesn't refer to the Father, Son and Spirit as persons who can relate to each other, but rather as different emanations or expressions or manifestations of one person. And again, Orthodox Christianity doesn't go there. It says, no, the Father, Son and Spirit can interact like they do at the baptism of Jesus, for instance. And a third way of getting around the problem is you can do what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, and you can do what Arius did in the Council of Nicaea, which is what you do is you deny that the Son is fully divine and uncreated like the Father. And then you probably deny that the Spirit is as well. So you say, well, no, there's only one God, and that's the Father, and then the Son and the Spirit are like lesser, lesser gods. To which Athanasius, our friend, would say, ooh, 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 ooh. That is not true. That is not Orthodox Christianity either. And what each of those things do is they are ways of trying to resolve the doctrine of the Trinity, which is ultimately something that you and I with our finite minds cannot fully resolve. So I want you to imagine for a moment that I had a, sil- a cylinder up here, and I'm holding it in this direction, okay? And there's people over in that section of the room, and if I said, you can only see in two dimensions, what shape are you looking at? They would say, oh, it's a circle. And if I said to people in that part of the room, you can only see in two dimensions, what shape is it? You'd say, It's a rectangle. And the reality is it's both, but neither of you, if you could only see in 2D, would be able to see how it was all of those things, because you can't do this. Now with the Trinity, to some degree we're doing that. We're looking at the divine life, at the divine being and going, I just can't get my head around all of these truths at once. But the way to do that is not to say, oh, in that case it's just a circle, you guys are idiots. Or, oh, it's just a rectangle, you guys are idiots. The way to do it is to affirm he is both of these truths at the same time. He is all of these things And my mind is too limited to fathom how that can be true. And that's what Christians have always done. We've said there is one God, there are three persons in God, and each person, Father, Son and Spirit, is fully God. And the shorthand for that belief is the Latin word Trinity, because it's quicker. But notice, friends, this isn't theological wordplay. right? This isn't just a game that people like me like to play. This is biblical reality without which you don't have a Jesus who is fully God with the Father or a spirit who is fully God with the, with the Father. You end up with a hierarchy. You end up with a Jesus who, when he comes to be a human being and rescue you, that's not God doing it. That's like a lesser deity kind of doing it. And the early church fathers who wrote this creed insisted he is fully God because they wanted everybody to know, and they often said this, that the Son of God became the Son of Man, that the sons of men might become the sons of God. They wanted you to see that the person who died on the cross and rose again was himself fully God because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to reconcile you to God. Jesus, in Hebrews 1, and throughout Scripture, and in the Nicene Creed, is the Word. He is the one through whom the world was made. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact replica of His nature. He is begotten of the Father, worthy of worship, eternal, truly God, and changeless. Or, as the Nicene Creed puts it, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, light of Lights very God of very God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through whom all things were made. He is glorious, and we're going to worship him. Let's pray. Jesus, we adore and admire you. We are transfixed by who you are, fully God, and yet become man in order to rescue us. Eternal, there was never a time you didn't exist begotten of the Father before all worlds, we thank you and rejoice in you that you have come to be like us as a human being and yet you remain fully God. We are so grateful that you have because you are therefore able to reconcile us to the Father. We rejoice, we delight, we are thankful and we praise you. What a beautiful name you have. What a beautiful person you are. Amen.